right, hello everyone, and welcome to the 27th episode of the Lab. Uh, as always, sitting with you is Lou Follenkamp, Brandon Weird, and Alex Trotter. We have a special guest with us today from Florida Atlantic University, Coach Joey G. So, <laughs> so Joe, you've been in a few different schools. If you want to go ahead and list off those schools and uh, why you are now at Florida Atlantic University. Yeah, I mean, I started off at uh, as an intern at Velocity. And then I uh, I got a GA ship at Northwestern State, um, did a few interns, internships. Uh, I did internship at FAU back in 2011. Uh, and then I did an internship at LSU, um, actually, that following spring in 2012. Uh, became the head strength coach at Northwestern State in uh, 2013 and was there for uh, almost two years. And then I ended up going to uh, Ole Miss, where I spent four years as an assistant. And then uh, at Colorado State as an associate head one year, and then I got promoted to the head strength coach the following year. And now I've been down here. This is my fourth season. Um, going into my fourth season here, we just had a head coaching change. Uh, I was blessed to be retained, which is was awesome because I absolutely love it down here. I love the, the players that we got and the facilities. It's just really nice not to have to move. You know, that was, that was probably the best part. <laughs> good. Very good. So I, I ask every single strength coach that we bring on the lab, uh, what made you want to become a strength coach? So uh, I always loved the training process. Like even back in high school, like I was a meathead. Um, I loved football. I didn't realize this was even a profession until I got to junior college. And uh, Dos Remedios, who was my strength coach at the time, um, I remember asking him one day, I was like, you get paid to train us and that's all you do? And he's like, yeah. I was like, really? And uh, I got <laughs> into it and I, I started looking it up. And, uh, you know, it, it became an obsession of mine. And, um, I went to college for science. I ended up getting a degree in it, and I hopped right in the profession before I even graduated. So it was one of those deals where I, I figured out what I wanted to do early. I wanted to be around football because I do love the game, uh, but I did like the training process and then the mentor process that also comes along with it. Like, there's a lot of physical stuff that goes into what we do, but a lot of psychological stuff as well, and a lot of camaraderie and relationship building, and that's that's a very fulfilling lifestyle. You know, when you feel like you're actually adding value to young men's lives. It's awesome, man. So are you primarily just one of the strength coaches for football or do you do you work with multiple sports at FAU? So I'm football only. Um, I have a staff of five. Everyone but one on my staff is football only. Uh, he works. Uh, the, the one that doesn't isn't just football only works with women's basketball, swim and dive. But, yeah, we're football only. So we're, we're pretty blessed because we get to spend a lot of time and, and do extra with our kids, not having to worry about other sports. That's pretty awesome. Unless you kind of like focus in, really dial in your efforts. Oh, yeah. Big time. That's cool. So one of the things that, that initially drew me like to to your Instagram page is you have a lot of a lot of posts on power, power production, speed. And uh, I actually read one of your articles that you had on uh, deceleration, how you really like to utilize the centrics. Uh, what what kind of like, I guess. I guess turned on the switch or flipped the light bulb that deceleration and eccentrics like what was like the correlation there for you yeah so at the end of every year i like to audit my program and what i'll do is i'll put all the components of the program on the board and i'll try to find holes on things that you know we don't have or missing or if there's injury trends or if there's anything like that and you know my first year here in 2020 we had a lot of ankle injuries which is weird and i couldn't pinpoint it and then when i went back and i looked at the mechanism for a lot of these ankles it was in a deacceleration state, like we're just out of position. So it got, I went down a rabbit hole and I started looking up 
the acceleration training, which is the cell training. Like I've done a little bit of it. Um, mm-hmm. It's been around a while. Like Parisi does a like Bill Parisi, who has Parisi as the uh, the franchise. Like they do a ton of it, but never really put it into like actually application and made it a like a locomotion pillar in my program. And um, I was like, you know what? We need to look into this. We need to train it more frequently. We need to make it a performance uh, metric for us. Like we need to make sure we're evaluated and let's get better at it. And it really just brought me down a whole rabbit hole of other things and getting into eccentric peak force, eccentric rate of force, uh, dynamic stability. Like it just started spewing a whole bunch of stuff that we weren't doing. And I was like, okay. I mean, the next thing is like, it's great. We have all this new stuff, but where does it fit? And that was where the compatibility of training, like where do we put it in the week? Uh, what are the training modalities to it? And, um, you know, I would say it's it's been unbelievable to see the results of adding that emphasis. And I'll never go back, right? We train go all the time, but we don't train stop. Mm-hmm. You know, and we all get enamored with the numbers of vertical jumps and broad jumps and cleans and all these other things, squat numbers. But then we look at, like, what about the other side of it? Because that's usually what usually what separates elite athletes is not just how fast they are, but how fast they stop and change direction. Well, I mean, the acceleration is literally the KPI of that. So if I could stop in less steps and in less time, like, and we're running the same speed, I beat you every time. Exactly. So it's just another way where it's like reverse speed. Like, everybody loves speed. And, you know, speed, speed training has really caught on as of recently, like, the last five years. You know, it's, it's like mainstream more – well, this is speed training. This is a way to create separation. You know, so that was something I was like, okay, we have to hammer it. It has to become one of my four pillars of locomotion. Um, and we have to we have to really train the technique of it and increase all the qualities that enhance it. Okay. So in terms of how, you, how have you gone about, like, incorporating that into your periodization? Where have you started putting that into? Yeah, I, I look at it as it it's very similar. The stress is very similar. From an eccentric force standpoint, as maximum velocity sprinting. So, you know, I would say if, if 15 people looked at my program, you get 15 different examples, 15 different examples of, of, you know, what type of system I use, right? Like everyone's like a dynamic effort, or he's a high low guy, no, he's a Caldeets, you know, eccentric, concentric. Like I always look at what fits and what's compatible, right? What makes sense, right? I want to, I want to condense stressors. I want to consolidate them so that there's no murky water, that is, there's, there's a clear stimulus to the body, and there's a clear recovery window that is followed by that stress so that we do recover going from session to session, week to week. So what we found was is if we have high eccentric forces, which we will have with deacceleration training or eccentric emphasized training in general, we got to pair that with another high eccentric activity. Well, okay, what was – the highest eccentric activity is going to be maximum velocity sprinting. So what we did was, is we had a day already planned out for that. Most programs have an acceleration day and a top speed day. So mm-hmm. for us, it was like, okay, let's consolidate all our eccentric strength training, or let's consolidate all our eccentric rate of force training onto that maximum velocity day and really, really hammer that eccentric uh, portion of it and compartmentalize it so that, okay, hey, if we do it on Thursday, if we follow with something on Friday that's not going to kill them or not going to tap that again, we'll have four days before they're really taxed again from an eccentric standpoint. And then even acceleration is not super demanding eccentrically as it is concentrically. 
So we'll have, you know, up to, you know, almost six days to get full recovery from it before the next time we have to train it. That's awesome, man. That's I, I absolutely love that. So what I'll do now here, Joey, is I'm going to open up the floor to Brandon and Alex here and let them kind of field. You can field a few questions from them as well. Absolutely. So when uh, you start going into like all your eccentric phases, how well does uh, that transition into your like your in-season lifts? So I always I love Charlie Francis, Shaq Snyder, and they, and one of their main deals was is if something's important, it should be trained year round. So for us, it became how do we keep eccentric training in the entire the entire year? So like we just got done with spring ball, and our Wednesday training session was a lower volume version of our off-season eccentric day. So we're still getting it in. So I just think that, and, and, and then you look at this as well, as if it's constantly being trained, right, you don't detrain. So your ability to recover from it faster, it's not as significant of a stress as if you were to reintroduce it without training it, training it for several months. So we go and we keep it in throughout season. We keep it in throughout the off-season. It's pretty easy for us to regulate through volume um, how – how much of a stress that's going to be and how fast they can recover from it. So, um, you know, we use pretty simple progressions too. Like, you know, it's, it's, I think sometimes things are overcomplicated. Like it's it, when it comes to strength work, you know, we go from, you know, sub maximal control lowering at like three to six seconds into maximal lowering to super maximal. Right. So like we could go from, a front squat at 70% with a five-second lower to uh, a front squat, you know, with a – or excuse me, a safety bar squat at 100% of, of the max, you know, hand-assisted lower five seconds to 110% with a safety bar with no hands on the way down, Hatchfield style, and then grab on the way up. So basically essentially creating weight releasers. So I don't think that it's it's hard to progress. Um, and I think you progress based off your athletes. I don't like use the timelines because everyone doesn't react to those timelines the same way. So as we see progress and we, as we see them handling those, those sub-maximal loads, we move to maximal loads. When we see the maximal loads being handled well, we move to super-maximal loads. I think the same can be said for eccentric rate of force training where you do like box step-offs, like I call them altitude drops. And you could start off at their vertical, their average vertical jump for the position Right, because this is this is one of my pet peeves too. Is like everyone's scared to put kids on higher boxes. Right? <laughs> they do depth jumps at twelve inches, and I'm like, you realize if you do repeat vertical jumps, they're doing a higher impact loading, a mechanical stress loading on their body than if they were to jump off that twelve inch box. Right, so for me, it's like the the obvious was okay. Let's start at least at vertical jump height, mm-hmm. and then let's build it past vertical jump height. Okay, so like we'll do. Four weeks where we start at the average vertical jump. Like, so, for like our skill guys, our average vertical jump is 35.7 inches on our team. So, we'll use a 36-inch box, and they'll do three sets of five step-off altitude drops. Then we'll move to 42 inches, and then we'll move to 45 inches, right, over three weeks. Then we'll drop the ball, the box back down after our deload, and we'll go into depth jumps, and we'll start a vertical jump. And then we do the same progression and build up. I've had kids doing up to 12 to 15 reps of, of depth jumps um, at a box over 45 inches, you know, and we look at ground contact time and they're still under 300 milliseconds, you know, which tells me that we were, we progressed them up to that point the right way where they can handle all that stress. 
do you find that system easier with football knowing that you got games on Saturdays versus like if you would try it with like a basketball program or something like that? No, I think it, it, it just depends on like with basketball, there's a lot of people that now train people post game. Mm-hmm. And I think it's based off minutes as well. Mm-hmm. Like you don't need, I think people overestimate how much volume drives stress and adaptation, right? Like we got Kremlin's chart, which was derived from Russians. Okay. During the steroid era, where all they did was is train, take steroids, and recover. So, like, all these recommendations on reps and volume, to me, is is overboard on what actually is necessary, right? Like, in season, I do, like, three sets of two on depth jumps, and our reactive strength index climbs every week as a team, a team average. Like, six reps, so you're going to be like, yeah, six reps of depth jump, absolutely. Like, think about it from, like, a, a, a strength standpoint. like. We do, you know, maybe two singles at 90 in a week, and that allows us to maintain our peak strength for up to three weeks. Yeah. You know, so, like, I, I think it's all about volume. So, like, you know, it's easy to, to control things if you control volume, and I think that the, dose, the, the, the proper dose response is actually less than what we actually need or what we usually prescribe based off a lot of these recommendations from other, play, or other places and other research. Mm. Yeah. No, I thought that was good because you stepped in on that. Have you thought about creating your own form of like what is considered a minimally effective dose then? Like based on like ages, groups? I, I mean, I, I dabbled with it a little bit. I think in some of my articles, I kind of give out what, what I use. Yeah. Uh, it, the, the problem is it's, 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 it is dynamic because it's all based off of what else is going on in that training block. Mm-hmm. So I can't just be like, yeah, my minimal, my minimal dose is 90 yards for sprint work. Well, you know, then you get the guy that just isn't, isn't weightlifting any of his kids and he does 90 yards of sprint work. And he's like, that's it. And then like, they don't yeah. get the same, the same response. Right. But they don't realize we're doing like 700 reps total in a four week mesocycle, mm-hmm. you know, in the weight room. Like, there, so I, it's always a checks and balance system. I do think there are specific, I think the, 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 the key to it, and I think mm-hmm. where you can be really savvy with it is when you understand minimal and maximal thresholds. Like, what is the max threshold rep-wise that these kids can handle in the weight room? What is the maximal sprint yardage they can handle? What's the minimal they, they need? Like, because then you can really start to say, okay, like, if my weight room volume's high, I need to at least get 90 yards. What is obtainable with 90 yards of sprint work? How many reps do I need this day? in the weight room how many how many reps apply measures do i need that day too as well because there's always a balancing you only get one bucket of water you gotta you gotta once it's full it's full yeah so you gotta balance out what you put in at what time Mm -hmm. now as far as like uh incoming freshmen let's say do you have them on something um like getting them used to your programming or do you just throw them in and like see if they survive kind of thing and like let them adapt yeah. like on their own and see what kind of athlete you have. And so, I mean, we meet them where they're at. So we're going to look at, we always use the first week to evaluate from a technical standpoint, from a work capacity standpoint, where they're at. Mm-hmm. Right. And then the new age uh, transfer portal has changed a lot of that as well. Cause now you're dealing with free agents. Yeah. Um, you know, I get kids that come in that have three years of college and you got to kind of figure out from a technique standpoint, you know, did their strength coach do a good job where are they at? What can they handle as well? So we usually take about a week 
and we put them in the beginner program from a, from a weight room standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we evaluate them. We teach them how we, we go through things. If they advance extremely fast, here you go. Like, let's roll. Like, I'm not going to waste time. I got nine weeks in the summer. That's it. And then we play, you know, 12 games and my paycheck is on the line every time we play a game. Like, I'm not yeah. going to say sit here and be like, yeah, we need to slow cook these kids. I got three years. Bullshit. Like, I got, like, you know. You got eight season. Yeah, the average lifespan of a strength coach nowadays is like two years. Yeah. You know, and, and wow. you know, I got a second life here, which is great, but yeah, you know, I'm not I'm not trying to go through that again. You know, so yeah. we gotta maximize performance and we gotta make sure that they can handle the demands of practice. That's a big part of it. And doing that is the high intensity work that we have to provide them, uh, along with the work capacity and threshold training that comes along with being able to adapt and thrive in practice. Now, with with you being under a new head coach now, are you making any changes based off of the type of offense that they run as so, well as far as in your training? I think it's always important to match. Like, you have to do your research on, on schematically. Like, yep. you know, um, I hate the coaches that are like, yeah, like, you're you're the football coach, I'm the strength coach. Like, no, dude, like, we're all here to win games. Like, Yeah, we work like, for the same company. <laughs> yeah, like, I'm not, not saying I know how to – I need to, you know, draw up five cover three beaters, but like I got to know tactically kind of just a general overview of what we're going to do and how we're going to do it. What do position um, anthropometric requirements look like? Like what does your tight ends look like? Do you use inline guys? What are you asking the tackles and offensive linemen to do? You know, like those are important questions. What's the tempo? How many players are you looking to run a game? You know, like those are extremely important. Like what is your rotation at receiver? Because that changes a lot of things. Yeah. Um, so I think there is, a, a, like, you have to do your background from a tactical standpoint, and you have to have that conversation. You know, like, and I told my head coach that, like, I'm like, the first thing we're going to do when you hire coordinators, because you hire me before the coordinators, I said, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to sit down with them and figure out, like, give me your thousand-foot view of what you're trying to do with this offense and this defense. Yep. All right, and then, I mean, to me, it also increases synergy in the building and alignment, like, because alignment is critical. Because if the kids hear me, you know, I mess with them in the warm up all the time. You know, I, you know, I throw out like, uh, "Why off? Why off?" Like, like how the backers yell. Uh-huh. They're like, "What the fuck are you talking about?" Like, how do you know? <laughs> that? Like, you know, and I, I'll mess with them. Uh, but it's like it also increases alignment because now everyone's speaking the same language and we all know where we're we're striving to do and where we're trying to go. So, yeah, I do think it it didn't change too much. We do have a little bit of high tempo, but we also are paced at times. So it was uh it was pretty easy. I think the biggest thing that when you get when you get a new head coach is you have to figure out what their practice is going to be like that's where you see the biggest differences is in practice style so we went from uh the previous coach who just loved being on the grass i'm talking four hours yeah love being on the grass to a coach now who's two hours and 15 minutes and we're off yeah but when we're on there it's go 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 so the volume drop right not significantly but enough but the density of our of our practices has increased and the intensity has increased. So battling that now and increasing density in our training, I had adding another high performance day and going to a five day model really helped out bridge the gap on that. I wouldn't have known that though, unless I went and did the research on it. Mm-hmm. So you've got to do that. That's critical. You have to be aligned with the head coach and what he's trying to do. Mm-hmm. So with developing strength coaches that are new to the profession, what would you recommend with them? Who's kind of like, you know, whole new environment, um, kind of like when you were, you know, when you first took your first college job, 
what would be some advice for developing strength coaches? Learn how to coach. Like I see so many, like the reason I moved up so fast, it, in my opinion, is two things. A, like I went out of my way to, to talk and relate to the kids. Like I, like I try to get guys to do extra work. I created relationships early on, even as an intern, like when you're a grunt, like you don't know anybody and you feel like you're like the bomb of the total pole. Uh, like I was like, no, like I'm going to, I'm going to learn these kids. I'm going to figure out who's who I'm going to get to know them. And I'm going to show you my, my value and the fact that kids like to come to me. The second thing is like, I knew how to coach like decently, right? Like not saying I was like a, a savant or like, you know, but I remember when I was in college, I wanted to learn how to Olympic lift better. So you got some with Glenn Pendley. Oh, yeah. Cal Strength. So, our, you know, he passed away yeah. a few years ago. But he had a YouTube tutorial where he went through all those. I used to fall asleep watching those videos. That's how much I watched. Donnie so Shankle, John North. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, and, and those were, to me, that was like the best videos ever. <laughs> I agree. And, you know, like. I used to fall asleep watching those videos. And then I got hooked on like just watching Olympic lifting videos and watching powerlifting videos. And like, I got just, that's all I did. I consumed it. Cause I was like, I want to get better at it. Let me watch it. So when I got to like my first internship, I'll never, I'm three weeks in and Brian Remington was the head strength coach. And it was here at FAU in 2011. He's like, he's like, he saw how I trained and he saw how I coached kids. He's like, okay, you're going to coach Olympic lifting for all our freshmen. I was like, what? Like, all right, cool. Let me go. And, um, like I got like a lot of praise from Brian Remington. And then I created a lot of references because of the way I coach, you know, and you fast forward, I go to LSU and they're like, dude, like you've only been coaching how long? I'm like, I've only been coaching like a year, like actually coaching in college a year. And like, holy shit. Like, like, and that's because, like, I took that part serious. I see so – and let me let me bring it full circle. I see so many coaches that can't coach shit, that, that are fucking terrible. Like, they don't know how to rack a bar. Like, if I say snatch grip, they don't know what that means. And I'm like, you want to be a strength coach, okay? But you – like, and I get it. Like, everyone starts at different points in their life. Yeah. I get that, too. Like, but I'm like, like, you have no idea. Like, none. Like, you don't even have a training history, you know? And it's like, oh, well, but I'm really good at Google Sheets or I want to learn about Catapult GPS or, you know, I, I've been to 15 seminars and I've read this and that. I'm like, bro, you can't coach. Like, the main thing is the main thing. Like, I love all the science shit. I love it. I do. I like the data. I like going down a rabbit hole. The reason I'm good at what I do is because of what I do on the platforms and what I do on that field, not because of – the fact that I've read 15 books, because that doesn't mean jack shit unless I can put it out there on the floor. Application. Yeah. Right. And our kids don't give a shit about eccentric rate of force development. Go ahead and say that to them. Hey, we're increasing your eccentric rate of force. What, coach, what the fuck are you talking about? Yeah. Like, does this make me jump faster or jump higher and run faster? Like, and how do I do it better? Like, that's all they care about. So, mm-hmm. again, I think it, it, it's these, like, coming in the profession, learn your profession. The main thing is coaching. Right. And it's not just, hey, you, you, you coach squats really well. Like, no, like I tell people all the time, like we don't use box squats. But if you ask me how to teach a Louis Simmons box squat, I can do it. Why? Because it's part of our profession. Like it's a tool in the toolbox. Like I should know, like a mechanic walks into his, his, his garage and knows every single piece in that garage, even if he doesn't use that tool. 
Like he knows it and he knows how to use it. Like it should be the same for us. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Agreed. So knowing what you know now, I think we've asked this to every single strength coach as well. Um, what would you have made changes with your training when you were developing as an athlete? Way more speed training. I, I did barely any at all. Uh, more plyometric training. Same damn thing. So I like I was, shit. <laughs> I was, I was always powerful. Like I was, a, I was a, a, a above average in power. I was above average in strength, and I had no bounce. Like I could jump high off two feet. You asked me to do a triple jump or jump off one foot to dunk a basketball, and I couldn't. But I could stand on the rim and dunk with two hands off a two foot jump. And when you look at sport, like literally the stress shortening cycle and your ability to use elastic energy is like critical. Mm-hmm. And that's where like I was I was flat footed, I was flimsy, like I just I couldn't I couldn't be as explosive or as dynamic on the field and really maximize my strength and my power because I I didn't have as much bounce as I should have. And it hurt me. It really did. It hurt me. Um, you know, and it, it, it sucks because if I was like 10 years earlier in the 80s, it would have been great because I could have played A gap to A gap at backer. But I, I, am, <laughs> I get I get thrown in the emergence of spread offenses, like the beginning of spread offenses, and they're asking me to fucking drop 15, 20 yards in the middle of the field and open up and do all this shit. And I'm like, oh, fuck. Like, I'm so, like, for me, it was only, it's 4 3. Yeah. Like the speed, the speed aspect of it would have been would have been uh, instrumental in probably, you know, giving me more of an advantage, you know. Um, and that's that's where like my son, like that's the first thing I started him on was like I'm like we're we're speed training. Like <laughs> you're not going to be the, the 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 slow kid that cleans 365 pounds. You're going to be you I, I, you clean 315, but you run four five. I'm good with it. Like let's go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Any other questions, gentlemen? Uh, how how uh like in depth of like technique wise do you get like into your deceleration training? Do you like start out with like closed train drills and open up into more like reactive stuff? Yeah, so we'll 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 take the uh very very uh regressed version and we'll do two step decel, and where we're teaching them how to sink into it. And there's a ton of, like if you want to go down a rabbit hole deceleration training uh technique or just qual like building up those qualities, uh, research Damien Harper. He's out of England. And he is, he's the godfather of it. Like, it's insane how much research he's putting out. But we teach the technical side of it, the dynamic stability, the rhythm of it, because there is a rhythm of it, right? And what I tell people all the time is, is we know how to te- teach extension really well, right? So acceleration, I mean, for the most part, everyone knows, does a decent job teaching acceleration mechanics. And I'm like, it's, if you just think it's the opposite. So where you want to get hip, knee, and ankle ex- extension, you want knee, hip, knee, and ankle flexion. Where you want upright posture and and move or, or uh, follow the foot and center um your your ground reaction or your ground strike to be behind the center of mass. You want full foot contact and you want it in front of the center of mass. So it's like when you think in terms of it's just opposite of acceleration, it makes it life easy. And we teach it and we go in depth on how to teach it with our guys. And then what we'll do is we'll build out the running distances. So we'll go from five yards to ten yards to fifteen yards. We'll go from bilateral to single lateral. Then we'll start to implement like what I call like rabbit chases. So like one guy will start it, so they accelerate based off him, and they stop when he stops. Mm-hmm. You know, and we we try to keep um, the the intensity of drill and, and, uh, by basically creating like all right, you can only go 15 yards, you can only go 10 yards. So holding the spots or uh, holding the uh, the entry velocity of the D cell by the distance, controlling that. Yeah. How how uh. 
nuts does it drive you when you go to basketball games and watch people like close out on their tippy toes and like try to keep their feet short and choppy and think that's going to make their reaction faster? I mean, it's it's going to keep me in business longer. <laughs> they're not doing it i am no shit that's more power to us you know oh that's awesome no, that's that's good that's the same way i'm a big speed guy so that's kind of how i base my days off i do like two uh acceleration two top end speeds and i do anywhere from two to three change direction reactive hip rotation yeah. like all the deceleration stuff like that yeah and to me it's like we, we do a ton of agility training like i think the cognitive side of it, it, it like the the perceptual side of it is critical but my my thing was this is like if they don't even have the basic biomechanics of stopping, no matter how fast the reaction times become, they're still gonna be out of position. So if you do both, like to me, that's where you make your most money. Like let's emphasize, let's treat deacceleration like acceleration training, like speed training. And then let's put it into an open environment where they have to react and let's increase their per, their, their their peripheral vision, let's increase their perception, let's increase the reactionary time of it, and let's see where that goes. Every time you got to slow down, you got to restart. So you might as well hit them both at the same time. Yeah, exactly. Any other questions? Good. Yeah. All right, everyone. Well, we hope you guys enjoyed our uh, our discussion here with Coach Joey G from Florida Atlantic. Uh, we'll see you guys next time.